So glad that you're here as we start this brand new series, Teach Us to Pray. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11, uh, Matthew chapter 6 here in a few minutes. Uh, as we just kind of over the next several weeks explore really the most powerful, the most important uh, prayer that Jesus ever prayed uh, during his time together. Uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 1 is where we're going to start this journey. It says this, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. This had become such a regular rhythm and routine of Jesus. In fact, it's funny as you read the Gospels, you get these little comments all throughout uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of just Jesus withdrawing, that Jesus went to a solitary place, Jesus went up on the mountainside, Jesus got up early in the morning. So here you're all, you are, you're a disciple, right? You're, you're, you're following your rabbi. Disciple means you're apprentice to a master, to a rabbi. And after time, if you're actually gonna follow Jesus, then you look at him and say, okay, I've gotta develop a rhythm of prayer because that seems to be a huge part of the way Jesus lived. Now let's just stop for a minute. Because if we get anything over the next several weeks as we go through this, if we intend to live like Jesus lived, how do we do that without a life of prayer? We don't, do we? That has to become a rhythm and routine that we develop. And so Jesus says, I wanna teach you to pray, but before I can teach you to pray, I have to go back because you're all carrying some religious baggage with you. How many know we all have our religious baggage, don't we? Disciples were no different. He said, we're gonna have to deconstruct and reconstruct some of your image of prayer because before you can really get to the heart of the Father and the prayer that I'm about to give you, we gotta correct some things. And so that's what Jesus does. Matthew chapter six, verse one. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Let's skip down a few verses to verse five. Jesus says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. And we're gonna get to that in just a second. Jesus is kind of deconstructing these false understandings and ideas of, of what prayer is. He rejects this kind of outward and attention-seeking style that had been practiced by religious leaders. He's like, that's not it. And here's what Jesus does. He completely uncomplicates prayer. He takes prayer from this like complex idea and all of these things that you need to say and do and you need to be wearing this, you need to go here. And he's like, it's not really about any of those things. He uncomplicates it. He actually goes on to say, your words may be the least important thing about prayer. Like that's, that's amazing to think about, right? Some of you know, uh, I talk about this a lot. Uh, I grew up in the Pentecostal charismatic church, come on now, which is why I make fun of myself a lot and I'm also grateful uh, for my heritage. I, I remember growing up, especially in this stream or denomination, that we would just sometimes make prayer so complicated. It's like to really receive breakthrough or healing, it was some like you have to unlock some kind of secret code and only two people know the code and, and they're gonna write a book on it so you have the code to unlock like God's fullness in your life. I always thought that growing up. 
Because we would be saying things and doing things, and I'm like, I don't find that anywhere in scripture. That just seems weird to me. In fact, I remember a third grade Sunday school teacher, bless her heart, come on now. <laughs> Christians say bless their heart right before they rip somebody apart, right? <laughs> oh, bless their heart. I know she loved Jesus. She loved Jesus, but she wanted everybody in my third grade Sunday school class to speak in tongues. She wanted them to have a personal prayer language. If you grew up in the Pentecostal Charismatic Church, speaking in tongues is up here and everything else is down here, right? It was all about that. And so I remember as a third grader, she lined us up in the room and she's like, I just need everybody to start praying out loud. And so we start praying out loud. And then she says, just start praying a little bit faster, a little bit faster, a little bit faster. So we're all praying faster until somebody slips over the words and she's like, there it is right there. That's your prayer language. And as like a third grader, I'm like, no lady, this isn't it. <laughs> this is weird, right? Like I have more discernment as a nine-year-old than you do <laughs> as a 35-year-old that it ain't it. Like, we don't have to get weird, do we? Yeah. We don't have to unlock some sort of secret code. Like, Jesus uncomplicates it. He's like, we want to make it like more than it really is. It's powerful, but it's simple. It's simple. We don't force God's hand in prayer. We don't manipulate God. It's not about any of those things. He uncomplicates it. You don't have to be an expert in the Jewish law. He dismisses, like, during this Greek time in the first century, there was these elaborate theological, uh, theatrical, excuse me, displays that people would want to do where they would be on the street corner. And say, I'm, I'm so good with my words. Jesus is like, nope, we don't need that. That ain't it. That's not what unlocks it. Prayer's not designed to impress. It doesn't matter really what words you use. We don't twist God's arm or bargain with him or manipulate or convince or haggle or any of those things, Amen. Is anybody glad? You know what Matthew chapter six, verse eight says? Like it's leading us to this idea. If you're taking notes and following along with me, prayer is less about informing God of the things we need or trying to get him to do what we want and more about shaping our own hearts and lives. This is what is a big misconception sometimes. Like when we, we believe when we pray that, that, God, that God moves on our behalf, there's no doubt about that, but prayer so much, and especially the Lord's prayer, is a more about conditioning our heart than it is about changing God, right? We're not trying to get God to do something for us. It's about shaping us. Matthew chapter six, verse eight actually teaches that. He says, don't babble on and on like the pagans, because guess what? God already knows what you need before you ask of it. So the words may be the least important thing about prayer. That's why sometimes we practice just even contemplative prayer, just sitting with God. How many know that's prayer? It's just being with him. And you don't even have to say anything. It's about presence. It's about interaction. And then Jesus gives us a simple but powerful prayer. In fact, we're gonna put the Lord's Prayer on the screen uh, this morning. Can we say this together? With churches and people and nations all over the world for, for generations who have prayed the same prayer and this morning are praying the same prayer, let's pray it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, power, and glory forever and ever, amen. Since we're gonna be in this, series for the next few weeks. Let me just, let me clarify some things real quick. We get two versions of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 in Luke chapter 11. They're slightly different. 
um, but very similar in a lot of ways. Much like all of the Gospels give you a little bit different perspective or different wording on some of the same stories. Uh, there's different versions of the Lord's Prayer. Like you may be a trespass person or a debtor's person, you know, or you may have like a little old school thine or thy. Um, in the first century, there was a, a book, first and second century, known as the Didache. And so the Didache was early Christian teachings of the church. So it was really like second generation Christians who were taking the teachings of the apostles and fleshing them out. So the version of the Lord's Prayer that we just read actually comes from the Didache. And so it's church tradition. They're taking Luke's account and Matthew's account and, and kind of combining them together because nowhere in scripture do we get for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. We added that church tradition just so you know where we're going and, and how we got here. In the Didache, here's what we do read. That as early as the first century, this prayer of Jesus became the heart of Christian prayer for the early church. That every time the church would gather together, and, and most of the time in these days, they would gather together at least once, if not twice a day. And all of you people who come to church once a month, you should feel shame and guilt right now, right? <laughs> they would get together once or twice a day. Guess what they would do? They would quote the Lord's Prayer. When they would take communion together, they would quote the Lord's Prayer together. Whenever there was baptism, they would quote the Lord's Prayer. In fact, we get in early Christian writings and some of the early uh, church fathers like Tertullian, actually by the first century, there were three times a day that the early church and early Christians would recite the Lord's Prayer. They would recite it at 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m. Why? Because guess how you and I are formed? We have formation through repetition. The ways that we are formed is actually through repetition, through formation, through practices. There's a reason we gather at the table every week. There's a reason we have a giving liturgy and a table liturgy. And sometimes I know you're just like, oh, we have to do this again. And you kind of go through the motions, but you don't even realize that every time that we're quoting and saying something, you know what it's doing for us? It's just bringing us back to the center of the gospel. Like we drift a little bit. And so every day, three times a day, the early church, I'm gonna recite the Lord's Prayer because guess what? I can't get too far from the heart of God if I have this repetition in my life. It's why sometimes we say creeds. It's why we take liturgies and traditions of the early church. And I know sometimes it seems boring to people and the church now and today has gotten away from some of this, but we need to return to it. You know why? Because it forms us. It shapes us. It keeps us walking down the center of the path. What do we learn about the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer becomes a template for prayer and a model for guiding us on how and what to pray. I mean, it's not the only way to pray, but it becomes a template. It becomes a model. It warns us when we deviate from God's will in prayer. It, it reminds us of things that maybe you forget to pray about. It becomes a filter through all, all of our other prayers have to pass through the filter of how Jesus taught us to pray. If it doesn't pass through the filter, guess what? It needs to change. It helps us discern in our prayer what to pray for. And this morning, I only wanna look at this first couple of phrases. It starts off with this phrase, our Father. Our Father. You notice how it doesn't start off with my Father? It starts off with our Father, because the Lord's Prayer was never intended to be prayed in isolation. It was never focused on the individual. This is a corporate prayer for the body of Christ everywhere. 
It's actually in a way when we say the Lord's Prayer, we're interceding for the body of Christ. That means you can be a mega church with a massive steeple and thousands of people, and you can be a small rural church with a thatched roof in a rural area, whatever it may be. Guess what? We join together with the same prayer. We're praying collectively for the body of Christ. This is one of the greatest, uh, I think, misunderstandings for us in the church today, in the Western church, in the American church in the 21st century. We have a tendency to see everything through the lens of me. How does this affect me? Do I like this church? Do I like this song, right? <laughs> Do I, how does this affect me? And yet when we read scripture, scripture was written through the lens of we. That it's not about you. You have never and will never be the focus or the center of anything. Come on now, glad you're here. It's always been about we, that we are a part of this body of Christ. We are collectively praying this prayer and we pray for God's kingdom to come and his will be done. We're praying this collectively, right, together that God would move in power. I find this particularly amazing uh, when I travel overseas and I'll be at other churches or be in other places. Some of you know we have church planning school in Burundi, Africa, and so spending some time in Burundi. In fact, I just, I jumped online and found some pictures of some of the churches that I'd spoken at recently in Burundi. If you guys uh, have some of those pictures, uh, you can put them up there. Just like rural churches in the middle of nowhere. In fact, the churches that we have, uh, sorry, we don't have those pictures, are in Gitega, uh, Burundi, in the middle of nowhere. And it's just a thatched roof uh, over top. And it's one of those places, it's like when you walk in, you can tell, like, they just put this together, right? And it's like falling apart and, and preaching in a place like that. Guess what? They recite the Lord's Prayer. All praying the same prayer. That next day, we went right down uh, the street, and it was one of the largest churches in this area. In fact, they're growing so rapidly, they're trying to add on, so literally, they'll just stick stakes in the ground, put tarps over it, and the church, the little church building keeps growing backwards because they just keep adding tarps and, and, and sticks along the way, right? And the same, praying the same Lord's Prayer that unites us all together under one, our Father, our Father, possibly the most radical part of the entire Lord's Prayer is how Jesus uses this term Father. See, even in the Old Testament, uh, I find this unique. In the Old Testament, they had this understanding of Father, but it wasn't really fully developed. God was omniscient, he was all-powerful, he was holy, he was set apart, but there was almost like all throughout the Old Testament, we, we get God's sovereignty, and it's almost like God was at a distance and yet Jesus uses this incredibly intimate term to describe the Father. Not only does Jesus describe God in, in, in intimate terms, but he invites you and I to use the same terms when we pray to the Father. Like you can express this term of endearment and intimacy just like I do. And I find this amazing because when we, we don't approach prayer trying to gain God's favor or affection, do we? God is already our Father, which means this. God is already disposed favorably towards you. You don't ever have to move him into your camp. Think about that. And I know you may know that in your head, like maybe you've been taught that, but how many of us in prayer often feel like we can't go to God because we had this deep guilt and shame inside, or we think to ourselves, like, I've, I've got to earn God's affection because it's been a long time since I prayed. Is this real life for anybody else? Nobody wants to admit it, but we all deal with it. 
I don't know if I can come to the Father. You already have someone that is favorably disposed towards you, which means you don't have to earn it. All you have to do is rest in it. Guess what? God already knows what you need before you ask it, so you don't even have to come with your list of stuff. Like he already knows. What you and I have to do is rest in who God is. I love this in in the book Wesley Hill wrote on the Lord's Prayer. He says this. I want you you to listen to these words. Maybe let these words kind of wash over you for a minute. When he talks about the Lord's Prayer, he's like, it's like an, an invitation. He says, go find a quiet place where you can relax, Jesus seems to say. Unclench your fists. Breathe deeply. Let your heart rate decrease. Know that you're already bathed in the Father's love and ask simply for what you need and the assurance that the one to whom you're speaking is already cupping his ear in your direction. That's what prayer should be. Amen? That's what prayer should be. Part of the purpose of the Lord's Prayer is to help us to see that our Heavenly Father is ready to give us for what we ask for and he already loves us. He's already moving on our behalf. He's for us. When we interpret scripture, we have to understand literary devices and all of the things that help us understand scripture. And I know a big word for a very simple thing is this. The Bible uses anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic language is just giving God human qualities so we can understand who God is. How many of you like in the Old Testament when it says like the arm or the hand of God? It's not talking about the physical hand of God, right? What it's talking about is it's giving God human-like qualities because if, if it, Scripture didn't do that, guess what? We would never understand God because God's unknowable. He's always bigger than. He's always better than. He's always more than we can understand. And so Scripture helps us by giving God human qualities. And here's what we see in Scripture. There's clearly something important to Jesus about this term Father because the number one term that Jesus uses to describe God is Father, the relationship with the Father. He refers to them as Father. Here's the reality for you and I. When we use the term Father, it can carry disappointment, can it? It can cause trauma or baggage because some of you, an understanding of the Father is a picture of of love and goodness and trust, and some of you have been let down by your Father, right? And, and we can project that on our Heavenly Father. Like we could go around the room and we could say, hey, everybody describe the relationship that you had with your father growing up. And some of you in the room didn't know your father. Some of you may have been in an abusive relationship growing up. Some of it, it was just full of disappointment. And we have a tendency sometimes to project like our understanding or our experiences on our Heavenly Father. I, I can be honest with you, like it, it's never been hard for me to understand a Heavenly Father who is completely good because my earthly father has always been good. And so that's not a big leap for me. Earlier this year, uh, my wife's uh, father, my father-in-law passed away. He lived a tough life. He wasn't there a lot of her childhood. As he got to the end of his life, he tried to correct some of those mistakes, but there was a lot of regret and disappointment and things like that. How many know I understand the love of the Father, and even though my wife grew up in a different environment, how many know she understands the love of the Father? Just because that was her experience doesn't mean that she has to project that on who God is, right? Here's what it's saying to us. Whether your experience with your Father was good or bad, our Heavenly Father is not like our earthly Father. 
God is a pattern and an example of what a father should be. Even the best fathers can't live up to the standard of who God is. God is steadfast, he's faithful, he's loving, he's kind, he's compassionate, merciful, just. He's always good. In fact, I, I, I read this quote by Pope Francis that wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer, and I love what he says about this. He says, whether our human fathers loved us deeply or abandoned us entirely, or whether our fathers died or were simply absentee, we are not orphans. We are not orphans because our father loves us and has adopted us into his family. And we could go into Romans and we could go into Galatians and these different books of the Bible that actually talk about you and I are adopted as sons and daughters. How many know when you're adopted as a son and daughter, you don't have to strive any longer to be loved, approved, or a part of the family, do you? You're in because of who you are. We don't have to strive in it. It goes on, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. For Jesus, heaven is not a place uh, up there or over there. We actually did a really poor job over the last several, uh, I would say, decades, especially in the evangelical church, talking about we want to come to Christ or get saved so that we can go to heaven and get out of here. How many know none of that is actually biblical? You're like, I, want, I, I didn't know that. We're not trying to get out of here. We're trying to bring God's kingdom to reality here. Heaven is not just up there where we're going. It actually says that God one day is gonna recreate a new heavens and a new earth, which means he's gonna come back here and everything that was broken because of sin, God's gonna renew and redeem and restore. Heaven's not just over there, a place where God dwells. When, 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 when Jesus is talking about this, this idea of heaven, this is the place where God rules and reigns. Heaven is a place where God's fullness reigns. We know that we live in a, in a world right now that's broken because of sin. Right, we're all ready but not yet. We're waiting on the redemption of all things. Heaven is a place where there's no sin, no brokenness. Where God reigns in, his, in, in completeness, in fullness. So our Father who is in heaven our Father who is near to us right now is the air we breathe. Our, our Father who reigns right now over all things. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed's not a word that we use a whole lot. Literally just holy, set apart, completely other. God, you are different than all other. You are above, you're better, you're greater than. This hallowed be your name takes us back to the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments, where it says, uh, don't use the Lord's name in vain. Now, I spent the first like 25 years of my life just saying, don't say, oh my God, right? That ain't it either, folks. <laughs> don't use the name of God in a way that doesn't represent who God is and what he stands for. I, I've said this a lot. We, um, we use the name, Lord's name in vain a lot in politics today. We assign to God, in the name of God, things that look nothing like God or the heart of Jesus for our own agenda and our own pursuits because we're trying to get what we want accomplished. He says, nope, hallowed be the name of God. It's set apart. 
So what we're doing when we proclaim this, we're saying, God, you are completely set apart. You're other, you are holy, you are above all things. And I'm gonna reorient my life because I'm in your kingdom as someone who is holy and set apart. It's a form of worship and it's a form of alignment. We're aligning ourselves with who God is and what God wants to do in us. As we end this morning, I wanna ask you this question. What would change about our prayer life if we truly lived with an accurate picture of the Father's love and goodness towards us? When I talk about prayer with most people, let me be honest with you, and I understand this. Most people are motivated by guilt. I wanna pray more, but I don't. I wanna do these things, but I'll start them and then I don't finish them. How many know guilt is a horrible motivator? It doesn't last. I mean, I grew up in a, in a kind of a church environment, places where we thought guilt could, could lead people to salvation. Can't sustain you in a walk with Christ. You know what sustains you in a walk with Jesus, in a prayer life? Is knowing that you have a heavenly father that so loves you and desires to be with you that every moment of every day, he is just waiting for your time and attention. He longs for just a moment with you. So in your mind, you're like, man, I only had three minutes. And your heavenly father is like, yes, three minutes with my son, with my daughter. You're saying, you're thinking, I'm going through this trial, but I haven't prayed in a long time. Can I really pray about this? And your heavenly father is like, just bring that to me. I wanna carry that with you. I wanna sustain you. I wanna help you. I wanna guide you. Because how many know that's what really good loving fathers do? So if that's not your default about who God is, guess what? You have to rewire this and this. God is not bent towards disapproval and your prayer somehow brings him back to, no, he is already disposed favorably toward you because he's your father, right? And when you have a good father, you can come as you are every moment of every day. You're like, I don't know what to say. Great, it doesn't matter. He already knows your heart. When you develop this like familial friendship relationship with God where it's just like, I mean, you're driving in the car and it's like God is in the passenger seat and you know that there's an intimacy between you that you can share where you're at and you don't have to hide the difficult parts and you can be honest about your struggle and that kind of relationship that guess what your heavenly father wants with you. If you would stand your feet with me across this room. I think there's a lot of potential takeaways from this series. As we develop a vision for this year of becoming a people of prayer, making this a house of prayer. I think sometimes people start off and they wanna do so much in prayer. Maybe you start off small. Maybe you set a reminder on your phone every day where you just stop. Maybe you say the Lord's Prayer. You recenter your heart. Maybe in your drive to work, it's an opportunity for fellowship and communion with the Father. 
Maybe you wake up 15 minutes earlier. Right, whatever it may be. But let me remind you, it's not about your performance. It's not about your words. It's not about how well you did that day following God. (laughs) Let me remind you that the Father already knows everything about you, the desires of your heart. So you don't have to take a whole lot of time filling him in on the details. And he's already for you. His love for you is endless. I know I say this all the time, but it's become such a life message for me. I think most of us cannot, and I I understand, cannot comprehend a God who is completely good 100% of the time. I think God's mostly good. 98%, but that 2% I'm not certain about. We can't fathom a God who is 100% good and for us in that in every moment, God is working towards you, for you, and never against you. God is never working in any way that would be to your detriment. He never rejects you. And going into prayer with that understanding and mentality, why would we ever hesitate in prayer knowing that we serve a God who is good, loving, and for us. If you would, just right where you're at, close your eyes with me. Before we come to the table here in just a minute, I just wanna take a second as we just prayed the beginning of this, our Father, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. I wanna just rest for a minute in this understanding of our Father. Maybe some of you in this room, you have some religious baggage. Maybe your father didn't live up to expectation. It was a disappointment. The heart of a praying life, of someone who is committed to prayer and developing this rhythm, starts with an understanding of who the father is. If we don't know who the father is in our life, we will never sustain a life of prayer. So this morning, For these next few minutes, we're just gonna rest for a minute in the love of the Father. We're gonna rest in the love of the Father. We're gonna replace the lies that we believe with the truth of who he is. Your heavenly father is not disappointed in you. Your heavenly father is not waiting for you to go back and do this better. Your father, heavenly father is not passive aggressive towards you. Maybe there's some deep wounds and lies some words, some things, some trauma, some disappointments that you've allowed to shape your understanding of your heavenly father. 
I'm praying this morning that those would fall away, those would fall off of you. As we just take a minute. God, we thank you that every moment of our day we can come to you. God, I thank you that one day when we are in your kingdom fully, we are gonna realize just how good you really are. When all the sin and all the brokenness and all the disappointment is gone, and we're just gonna rest in the understanding of what it means to be completely and fully loved. Until then, Father, we're gonna struggle well. God, we just reshape our hearts this morning around this understanding that you are a good, good Father who wants relationship with us, who longs to be with us. If you would, just stay in this attitude of prayer right where we're at. We're gonna prepare our hearts this morning to come to the table.